you have a Bible with you, open up to Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one in front of you in the pew. We'll be on page 11. going to work through some major points in this chapter this morning. If there's anything that uh, you have questions about, you can... Um, Go to slido.com as usual and type in RevCDA and uh, put in your questions there and we'll take a look at them at the end. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for um, just this, this story that you've preserved for thousands of years of, of the way that you interact with this man, Abram. And um, you've said that it's for our benefit for our instruction, and I, I just pray that we would, would hear that instruction this morning, that um, your spirit would work in our midst and bring comfort and conviction, um, challenge, rebuke, what, whatever it is that we need, God, you, you know what it is, and I just pray that, um, that you would do your work in this place as we engage with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've got a question for you guys, so you can, you can talk to me. Um, what are you afraid of? Rejection. Ooh. Sharks. <laughs> you took mine, dang it. <laughs> what else? The dark. Yeah. Speaking out loud in large public spaces. About that. <laughs> I asked my kids this week what they were afraid of, and my oldest said that she is afraid of being put in a situation where she has to choose between the safety of the world and the safety of her family. So she's going to be one of the Avengers when she grows up. Um, and I thought about um, uh, every so often we go to Seattle and we go to Woodland Park Zoo. And in Woodlawn Park Zoo, there's a, there's a building that's like called the Creature Cottage or something. I forget. But it's all, it's all bugs, right? And you go in and it's dark and there's all these glass panels and they're lit from the inside and there's something creepy crawly in there. And you kind of walk through and, and we'll go through with our kids and, and, and my wife and, and they're all... They don't love bugs, but they're behind the glass, right? And so they're like peering in at the scorpions and the centipedes and the spiders and stuff. And you, you walk down this path and then you get to the very back of the room and then there's another exhibit. And in that exhibit is just the biggest spider you've ever seen in your life. And it's on a web, on a stick. And it takes you a second, but then you realize there's no piece of glass here. It's just hanging out. And uh, I just remember the first time that we experienced that and my entire family like ran out of the, out of the house and into the outside to go see the penguins or something because <laughs> they just couldn't handle it. Um, fear is a weird thing, right? There's, there's really three basic emotions that we grapple with that are, that are destructive. There, maybe there's more, but, but I, there's three big categories. And the, the first one is, is guilt. We, we feel guilt because of something that we've done in the past. 
right? They're, guilt is past focused. I did a thing and I feel guilty about it. But sometimes we feel shame. Shame is a, is a, is a dark feeling that we feel in the present. It's about who we are. I am experiencing shame. I am ashamed of myself. But then fear, fear is always future-focused. Fear is always about something that hasn't happened yet. Whether you're afraid of sharks or the dark or speaking in public or spiders, you're not afraid of those things in the past. You're afraid of the possibility of those things in the future. And whether we like it or not, all of us experience this to some extent. We're all afraid of something. Sometimes it's an irrational fear. Um, sometimes it's a, an expected fear, a healthy fear. Sometimes it's just kind of a low-level anxiety that you experience all the time and you try to ignore. But it always has to do with like that thing out there in the future. Uh, Jesus has something to say about this. He says in Matthew 6, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. That's one of those things that Jesus says that you go like, well, thanks, Jesus. That's, That's a tweet, I guess. But it's hard, right? It's hard to live in that place that he calls us to, to not be anxious, to not look towards the unknown future and go, what if I get eaten by a shark? What if the relationship falls apart? What if my job situation changes? And we know that that even this low-level anxiety that many of us experience, it fuels fatigue, and creates physical health problems. It can lead to depression or full-on panic and stress. There's been work done recently that indicates that many, many modern people are constantly in a state of fight or flight. You know, that, that uh, momentary place that you go when, when there's a lion chasing you. You know, you can relate to that. And, and you have to, like, make a really quick decision to run or to attack. Your body's built that way because it's, it's, it's meant to protect you, but so often because of the lives that we live, we're constantly in this low-level state of something's gonna get me. And we, don't, we obviously don't think it's a lion, but it's, it's something out there on the horizon that sooner or later is gonna catch up and get us. This morning, I wanna talk about fear. And it's antidote, which is faith. And I want to talk about two kinds of fear. Fear about things that are going to happen in the near future. This is stuff that, that we're all maybe working through in this season of, of economic and relational stress, of political upheaval. What's going to happen? And then I want to talk about fear of the far future. But first of all, let's look at at Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these events, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, 
What can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. So Abram's just come off of this amazing victory. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how he uh, found out that his nephew Lot had been captured by these kings and his whole family was taken away. And Abram got together 300 men and went after these armies and captured back Lot and his family and all the inhabitants of Sodom and and he experienced this great military victory. And then beyond that, this guy, this weird guy that we're going to talk about in Hebrews in our community groups in a few weeks named Melchizedek shows up and he blesses Abram and and gives him this um, uh, just like commendation. And so you'd think Abram would be riding high at this point, right? Everything's really good for Abram right now. But the very next thing we see is Abram in a dark place. And we know he's in a dark place because the first thing God says is, don't be afraid, Abram. Why is he afraid? And we read this and like, well, he doesn't have any kids, right? And for us in 2022, that's kind of a, I mean, many of us understand that. Maybe if you, um, you're not a parent and you want to be, maybe you've struggled with infertility like Abram and Sarah are at this time in their life. And you're like, man, I'd, I'd really like to have a child. But that's, but that's just a very small part of what's going on with Abram. And I want to take a little, little side, side note here. I was uh, driving in Coeur d'Alene a couple weeks ago, and I, I saw somebody who had a couple bumper stickers on their car. They had one of those um, really nice Mercedes like camper vans that are all the, the thing on the YouTubes right now, you know? And uh, one of the bumper stickers said, save skiing, stop breeding. I don't know what that means. Apparently, the ski hills and our children are inversely uh, compatible. I don't know. But then the second bumper sticker uh, gave me some more information into this person's views. It, it said, keep dogs, rehome kids. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it's kind of distasteful, right? Um, but, but if you've noticed, there's this whole group of people kind of springing up in the world that are calling themselves anti-natalists. I don't know if you've seen this, but I spent too much time this week on the website stophavingkids.org. And a quote from their website, anti-natalists consider intentional human reproduction besides exceptions related to force an irreversible, unnecessary, indefensible, and enduring form of harm regardless of circumstances, situations, or consciousness of living. And I think that's really funny because in order to have a position that, that, that states that you're against having children, the only people that can really call themselves that, they live in a culture with on-demand contraception, a primarily urban work environment, and large amounts of financial security with a social safety net, right? Like, this is, this is a philosophy, a worldview that can only exist at this time right now. 
No other society at any point in human history could have ever considered this because it is absurd. And I want to, you know, go out on a limb here this morning. I also think it's unchristian. I think as we talk and think about children, Christians should be people who have children. And I don't mean every Christian. There's a lot of reasons why individual Christian people are not going to have children. Singleness, infertility, adoption, foster care. There's lots of ways that God is going to move in individual Christians' lives in this issue. But as a whole, Christians, people in the church, should be having children. And this is something that I love about our church. If you were here with us last week when we didn't have the classes open and all of our children celebrated our birthday with us, it was noisy and fun, and uh, I loved it. Um, I know all of you parents maybe didn't love it as much because your children were being noisy and fun, but kids are such a gift. Even when they're hard, even when I've been talking to people all morning who like, there's like the germs are passing between all of our families right now and everybody's getting sick and, and man, that's a bummer. But children as a whole are part of the divine blessing. We read it in Genesis chapter one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is what God tells his people to do. Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Genesis says, Abram's situation contradicts not only the general view of Genesis, the divine blessing leads to a man being fruitful and multiplying, but also the specific assurances already made to him. Abram is, doesn't understand why he has, doesn't have a child. One of the main reasons that we are kind of disconnected from Abram is because in our world, and this is what kind of the antinatalist people are trying to kind of key in on, oftentimes children are primarily a means of personal fulfillment, right? Like you're, you're, a, you're a couple, you've, you know, you've been married for a while, and you, you, know, you got a cat first and to test the waters, and then you got a dog, because that's the real like, experiment on whether you're a parent or not. And then uh, maybe we should have a baby and oh, he'll have your eyes and he'll have your nose and it'll be so great and you'll be such a great parent and all that. And, and we have this idea of children as like a way, like the, the, the ultimate accessory to our lives. A child will make me happy. A child will strengthen our marriage. No. But see, Abraham's, or Abram's not asking that question. Abram's asking, who will care for me when I am too old to work? Who will protect me from those that would take advantage of me when I can't see or think well? What's my legacy? What's the point of my life if I can't pass myself on to a child that will live after me? See, in Abram's world, children weren't just a means of personal fulfillment, they were the way that you secured your family. They were the way that you made sure that you could raise food for your household. Your children were uh, a workforce, an asset, the means by which you would be secure. See, Abram is looking into the near future, he's getting up there in age, and he's asking the question, 
how is everything going to be okay? I just, I just don't know how things are going to work out for us. Have you ever asked that question? You ever looked into the near future and, and been afraid because you don't know how things could possibly work out? And Abram, even, he starts scheming a little bit. Well, you know, I've, I've got this servant, Eliezer, who's pretty trustworthy, and, and it's not really ideal, but I could adopt him, and we could move some things around and, and make it work. Because Abram's afraid. And that's what fear does. Fear is deceptive, right? Because remember, just what just happened to Abram? In chapter 12, Yahweh, the God of the universe, shows up and he says, I'm going to pick you to be my special person, and I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. In chapter 13, Abram screws up pretty badly in Egypt, but Yahweh still protects him and makes him rich despite his sinfulness. In chapter 14, like I said, Abram wins this battle against a much larger army and gets this mysterious blessing from Melchizedek. And the very next thing is Abram's afraid of his future. God might not come through on his promises. Because fear is so future-focused, it causes you to lose sight of the past, when there are good things in the past, when there are things that God has done in your life to show how faithful he is, fear blinds you to that. When I'm afraid, it's because I have forgotten all of the things that God has done and all the ways that he's been faithful. Paul reminds the Philippians of this in Philippians 1. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, the past faithfulness of God, anyone in here that has any kind of story about how God showed up for them, that should inform our view of the future. But fear gets in the way. It prevents us from making that connection to the past. So what does God say to Abram? He says, I am your shield, your reward will be great. Abram thinks he needs a son to protect him in his old age. And Yahweh says, no, I will protect you. And I will give you a son. Whatever it is that you're afraid of this morning, whatever comes to mind when you think about the future and the uncertainties of it, whatever you think you need to overcome that fear, You need to hear that God isn't first offering you a solution. He's offering himself. He does say, Abram, your reward's going to be great. But the first thing he says is, I am your shield. God himself offers himself to you. It might be that God will give you whatever it is you think you need to overcome your fear. He might not. But what the creator of the universe today offers each one of us is him. So what we have to wrestle with is, is he enough? When you look ahead at your fears in the future, is is a relationship with the God who made you and sustains your life enough to calm your fears? Do you trust him to take care of you? 
God goes on in, in verse 4. He says, Now the word of Yahweh came to him, This one, Eliezer, will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed Yahweh and he credited it to him as righteousness. So this verse... Abram believed Yahweh and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is a verse that gets picked up multiple times in the New Testament when we talk about something called faith. And what it's important to understand here is that faith is not about the existence of God. Oftentimes in our world, we think that faith is about uh, believing in something's existence. Because if I say I have faith in God, in our culture, it's kind of a toss-up whether God is real or not. I mean, if, if you know enough people, you know a lot of people just don't believe that God is real. And so we assume that that's what we're saying. But faith in Scripture is not about the existence of God. It's about trusting in His care for you. Very few people in the ancient world doubted the existence of gods. They would have assumed that gods were real. And so if I say something today like, I have, I, I, I believe, I believe in unicorns. Well, then you all assume that I believe that unicorns are real, right? But if I say, I believe in Governor Little, Nobody's going like, well, he really thinks Governor Little is a real person. No, it, it's saying that I, have, I trust in his agenda, whatever that is. And so when we read believe language or faith language in the scriptures, we need to make sure we tune ourselves to an understanding that we're not talking about the existence of God here. We're talking about trust in him, allegiance to him. Yahweh is calling Abram to trust him, to give him an heir, to make sure his future is secure. And then the narrator says something strange. He says, and he credited it to him as righteousness. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably memorized that. Kind of a, just one of those things that, that the Christian church has really um, rallied around. He believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness or justice in the Bible means right relationship or right standing. It means that everything is good between God and Abram. Nothing is getting in the way of the relationship. What would get in the way? Sin gets in the way. In Isaiah 59 Isaiah says, indeed, the, arms, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear, but your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. And this doesn't mean that God can't actually hear you. God is everywhere. He's omnipotent. He knows you and he sees you, but my sin is a relational barrier to a healthy relationship with God. And I know you've, you've all experienced this where you have a relationship, maybe it's a friendship, and somebody does the other person wrong. 
and there's a break. And if there's no restoration, it's just, it's just weird. Have you ever been, been in that place where like you go to the grocery store and you see them on the other side and you like go down the other aisle? What is that? It's because the relationship is broken. It's because I don't really want to see you because it would be weird and awkward and I don't know how to deal with it. And that's not on God's part, but on our part, we sin against the Lord and it breaks the relationship with God on a much greater cosmic level. God is good and perfect and holy and sin destroys our ability to be close to him. So what does God do in this text? God reconciles the relationship. God makes Abram righteous. So another question, looking here, does Abram do righteousness? Does he do anything? No, he doesn't. He just trusts in Yahweh. And God credits this belief to him as righteousness. Credit is an accounting word. Um, Think of like your checking account or a balance sheet for a business. We can use credit in a couple different ways. I was thinking about this this week. Um, If I make a payment on my credit card bill, it shows up as a credit on my account, right? Like I owe a hundred dollars and I make a payment of a hundred dollars and it shows a hundred dollar credit. That's one kind of credit where, where the thing credited and the thing owed are the same, right? But then there's another kind of credit. Um, on my insurance, I get a, uh, I think they call it a bundle credit because my homeowners and my auto insurance are with the same company. And so there's a little line item on my insurance that's a negative and it's, I get a credit because I do that. But the thing that is credited, a dollar amount, and the thing that I do are different, right? And this is what's happening here. Abram isn't doing righteousness to help pay off his debt. He's believing, and God is turning that into a credit that makes him righteous, that makes him good. Paul picks this up in both Romans and Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is pretty upset about it. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. The Galatians, knowing that God has given them life and the Holy Spirit and adoption into the body of Christ as a gift through their trust in Jesus, they've decided that they would rather like to earn that life by living according to the regulations of the Jewish law. It would be like me seeing that line item on my home and auto insurance and saying, you know what, I know you're giving me a credit for bundling my package, but I'm just going to pay you that extra money anyway because it makes me feel better about myself. That's dumb. 
Like, that's my financial advice for the day. That's dumb. Don't do that. Abram would have been foolish to try to earn standing with God. And so are you and I if we think we can do the same by doing good works. And that doesn't mean that good works don't matter. But our relationship with God is founded on us simply trusting in Christ. And he alone repairs the damage that sin has caused to our relationship. He is the one that credits our account and makes us righteous. So when you think about whatever it is that comes to mind when you think you're afraid, if you think about your housing or your finances or certain relationships that are not working out really well or retirement or or a hundred other things, are you someone that has put your faith and your trust in God? Is he your only hope? If God fails you, is there a plan B? Because for Abram, there isn't one. Like there's just, God, God just says, no, no, your plan B, your whole Eliezer of Damascus thing, that's not going to work. Trust me, I will take care of it for you. And he does. But then he asks a little bit different question, and this is where we move to fear and faith, not for the the upcoming present, but for the farther future. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, Abram said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Abram seems less sure about this part of the promise. He doesn't ask God to prove that he will give him a son. But he does ask God, he questions God now for this land promise. Why is it different here? Abram already knows back from chapter 12 that he will not possess this land. It will be given to his descendants, to his offspring. Abram will not see this promise fulfilled. This is a promise about the far future. What will happen to Abram at the end of his life? How will his family continue? And what will his legacy be? And this is a, ends up being more of an existential question for Abram. Not just how, how will I get by when I'm old, but what will happen after I die? Will God be faithful to me and my family long into the future? Do you ever think about the future like that? Do you ever think about death? What happens to your family? What happens to you? What lies beyond death? This classic line in Hamlet, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. And Hamlet says this idea of death is this, this unknown and we'd rather stay here and never experience it then go to a place that is foreign to us. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my youngest daughter asked my wife if our dog was going to die. Our dog is one years old. 
Um, and uh, the conversation was kind of like, uh, well, you know, everything dies sooner or later. And it wrecked her. Like, just for the whole rest of the day, like, she was inconsolable because the dog is going to die someday. And we all are that way, aren't we? Like, I... I, I it is, it is amazing to me that we are 100% as far as death is concerned, right? There's, like, I mean, there's a couple guys in the Bible that skipped out on it. But like everybody else dies. And every single time it happens, nobody's ready for it. Nobody's prepared for it. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it. It's, not, it's never anything that is welcomed. Scripture says that death is an enemy. And we can't even, we can't even wrap our minds around it. What does it mean to just, to just not wake up tomorrow? To just be gone? Where are we gone to? And, you know, we can, we can search the scriptures and there's answers for that. But, but viscerally in our guts, like, I don't know. And Abram is asking these questions. All he can fathom is that he will live on in his legacy through his descendants, but he can't be sure because he won't be there to see it. That's kind of scary. But what does Yahweh do? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all, all these to him and cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will turn here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Okay. The two things are happening here. The first thing is Abraham is receiving a vision of the future. This, uh, this deep sleep language that is used is, is language that's often portray, used in the Old Testament to portray visionary experiences. God is showing up in a weird kind of dream state for Abram. And then God communicates some things. He tells him the future. He says, your descendants are going to be foreigners for 400 years in this other land. And he's talking about... Um, the book of Exodus and the people of, e of Israel in Egypt. Abram's family is going to go down to Egypt, and after a couple generations, they're going to be enslaved there. And we read in Exodus that, that Moses is chosen to deliver them and bring them out of Egypt. 
And he says, the people that are living in the land that I promised to you, they are wicked, but God is being patient with them. One of the most difficult things for us as modern people to read in the Old Testament is the stories about Israel taking over Canaan when they come out of Egypt and God's command that the nations be driven out. But God is working patiently with these people for like 400 years, and they're just becoming more wicked and more wicked. God's judgment on their society will come after centuries of patience. And he says, hey, Abram, you're going to live a great long life. You're going to die in peace. Everything's going to be fine with you. He's not given a lot of details about the afterlife. And if you go through the Old Testament, you're not going to find a whole lot. We get a lot more light about what um, life after this life is like in the New Testament. But he's given comfort. It's going to be okay. And then the next thing that happens is kind of weird. If you've If you've read this before and you're like, I don't really understand what's going on with all these animals. There's this this practice in the ancient Near East where two people would have a covenant with one another. They would would come together and they would strike up a bargain for whatever, land or or family or, or any number of things. And the way they would ratify the covenant because um, it, 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 would, it, it would be a, a significant covenant that they would want to make sure they kept each other honest for. They would take these animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay them uh, alongside one another with a path down the middle. And the two parties of the covenant would then swear an oath that they would keep the covenant and they would walk between the halves of the animals. And the word picture, the illustration of this is that Um, they're saying, may I be cut in half and killed like these animals if I break my word. This is a self-imposed curse. And so God tells Abram to get the animals together for this ritual. And well, I I promise to you that I will fulfill this for you, Abram. I'm going to give my word to you. And in order to show that I'm serious about my word, we're going to do this covenant ceremony that you would be familiar with. Go get these animals, set it up, and we'll do it. But then something weird happens. Abram goes to sleep, and God, as represented by the fire, he goes down the path by himself. Abram doesn't walk through the animals. Abram doesn't swear himself to any responsibility in the covenant. Only Yahweh does. See, this is a unilateral covenant. God is the only party who makes the oath. God is, in fact, saying, if I don't make sure this happens, if I don't take care of your people, if I don't bring you to the end of your life in a good old age, if I don't make sure everything turns out all right, I am cursing myself that I would die. And it's obviously ridiculous to think that God could die. It's also ridiculous to think that he would break his promise. So, Yahweh comforts Abram as he asks these questions about his far future. What's going to happen after I'm gone? By confirming this promise. 
through a covenant. But what about us? What about our far future? What happens, what happens when we die? What's, what's on the other side of that undiscovered country? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Paul is talking about our, our bodies, these tents, and, he, and he, he's talking about death. And he says, I'm, just, I'm confident that God has a new eternal body prepared for us. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, or things to come, or powers, or heights, or depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says there is nothing that could possibly happen to you to remove you from God's love. And even more so, Jesus himself in John 14 says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Believe, trust in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. (laughs) How can we know the way? I love Thomas. He's just like, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just like Yahweh starts this discussion with Abram saying, I am your shield. It's not about the things you're getting. It's not about the promises that you're expecting. It's about me. It's about a relationship with me. Jesus says the same thing. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And our relationship with Jesus is just like Abram's. It's a relationship founded on trust. How does Jesus show himself trustworthy? Just like he did with Abram. Jesus walks through the midst of death alone. Jesus takes the curse on himself. And just like in this covenant ceremony in Genesis, the promises that are made are completely unilateral. Jesus does the work alone. It is 100% dependent on Christ, his faithfulness, his death, and his resurrection. And we look to the far future, we don't need to fear because Jesus has defeated death. Acts 2, Peter says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And Paul and Timothy says, 
He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so in Christ, we are given a unilateral promise that he makes in his own blood that everything's going to be okay and that we can trust him. And that even as we still struggle in these broken bodies that we have, that have yet to be renewed and and changed, like Paul was saying earlier, we still have to walk through death, maybe most of us, but death has been transformed. Death is no longer an enemy that can destroy us, but a pathway to a new life in Christ. So this morning, the question for all of us is, is what are you afraid of? What do you look forward to in the future and, and, and worry about, have anxiety over? Is it, is it nearer things like health or finances or work or relationships? Or, or is it farther things, uncertainty about life after this life? About legacy, about what will happen to your family? when you're gone. Either way, Jesus is calling us to trust him and rest in the knowledge that he will take care of it for his glory and our good. Just like with Abraham. Let's do some questions. Are Christian couples who simply don't want to have kids in sin for not wanting that for themselves? Mm. Maybe. Um, I think, okay. Children are not the only purpose of marriage, but they are a significant purpose of marriage. And if you believe that you are called to marriage, but do not believe you are called to children, there might be a good reason for that. But my gut tells me, based on just the culture that we live in, there's probably not a good reason for that. And so I wouldn't want to say, like, you're sinning from this position to an anonymous person, but I would say get some pastoral counsel and figure out why you don't want to have children. Um, There have been couples who have felt a call to the mission field in a dangerous uh, situation where they didn't feel like children would be an appropriate thing to have a part of their calling. Okay. Um, There are couples that struggle with infertility and that's no one's fault and that's, um, there's no reason that that's Um, should prevent someone from marrying. But if, like, I just don't want to have kids is as deep as that reason goes, I would would keep poking at that because I'm not so sure that that is good enough. Is it unchristian to have boundaries with your parents? No. (laughs) 
I really love doing Q&R, but I also like wish everybody was like one-on-one -on -one in my office so I could ask follow-up questions. You should have boundaries with everyone. <laughs> and they should be healthy. And if you think your boundaries are unhealthy, then you should talk to somebody that you trust about figuring out some better boundaries. Uh, you should love your parents. You should care for your parents. Uh, but, but yeah, I don't know. How did Abram know to cut some of the animals in half? God didn't tell him to do that. Yeah, that's good. Um, the assumption that I'm going to make is that w since we have found this practice in other ancient documents in Syria and Cadia, I think, from around the time period, it was just a thing that was done. And so it seems like the way the story plays out, uh, God gives this directive and Abram just kind of goes, oh, I know what we're doing. That would be my thought on that. What is the significance of the Abrahamic covenant in God's plan of redemption? How does this text contribute to this theme? Yeah, that's good. Um, in a couple ways, right? First of all, the, the, the covenant in 15 is an expansion of the promise in 12. So when, if you remember 12 there, um, God is going to bless Abraham and make, make him a great people and um, make his name great and protect him and all nations will be blessed through him. And so he's this starting point. He's this seed form of the people of Israel that are going to be God's chosen people that are going to be on a mission to represent him to the world. They're going to fail time and time again, but they're going to, that's going to be their job. And out of the people of Israel are going to come, is going to come the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the, the king, the Lord, the savior, who is Jesus, right? And so in 15, the covenant is just God further rubber stamping and securing for Abraham in his own mind, in his own doubt, this is what I'm doing. I am going to fulfill my promises. And the, the way the covenant works, the fact that it's unilateral is significant because we get later on, we get to the Mosaic covenant in, in Exodus and it's a uh, bilateral covenant. God says, you are my people. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. And here are all the things that you need to make sure that you do in order to stay in right relationship with me and this covenant. That's not what God gives Abraham. The covenant with Abram is unilateral. It's all done by God. All God is inviting Abraham in to do is to trust. And I think because of that, Abraham's covenant is a model, and, and the New Testament picks it up as well. Um, Paul and James pick it up and say, like, this covenant is like the covenant we have with Christ. That Jesus has formed this covenant and created this people and given us promises and says, trust me. We don't have to complete a to-do list. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We're just called to trust. Just one more question. What are daily practices to counter fear we can implement if we're living in a lot of fear despite having an understanding of trusting God and trying to do so? Um, daily practices of prayer. I think are really important. I know prayer, that's kind of cliche, but like how you pray is significant. 
Um, sometimes if you just kind of like sit down and start talking to God, nothing wrong with that. Um, I tend to forget important things when I'm just kind of improving in my prayer. Um, incorporating some historic prayer that actually touches on some of these um, issues would be helpful to remind yourself of the goodness of God. Um, a lot of the, the prayer that I pray on a daily basis um, speaks of his goodness and his faithfulness and his uh, compassion uh, and how he has worked through history. And I need that reminder because when I'm afraid, like I said, the fear blocks you from seeing God's goodness in the past. And so praying things that actively remind you of his faithfulness are a way to push against that. I would also say um, I find journaling to be really helpful for this. I'm not a very good journaler, and I know not everybody's into journaling, but in seasons where I've kept a journal of what God is doing in my life, I can go back to those really easily because I have a really terrible memory and remember like, oh yeah, this is what I was afraid of. This is what was going on. This is what was concerning. And look what God did. And I can take that and use that as fuel to trust that God will do the same thing tomorrow that he did yesterday. And then just lastly, I would say confess that fear. And, and maybe, and when I say confess, I, I don't necessarily mean sin. it's sin to fear. It might be. You might, you might have a really um, broken understanding of who you are in Christ and who God is, and your fear is, is, a, is an expression of sinful mistrust. But it might just be your emotions. Um, but don't hold that in. Find somebody that you can love and trust and share that with them and let them pray for you. Maybe it's uh, in the context of your community group to say, hey, you know what? I'm really worried about this thing happening or, or might not happen. And I know it, maybe it's an irrational fear and I just need you to pray for me. Um, anytime, John says this in his first letter, anytime we bring stuff out in the light, it loses its power. Whether that's sin and temptation or anxiety and worry and fear, um, taking it out from that dark spot in your heart that it's so powerful, it just strips it of its ability, much of its ability. And I would just recommend that um, you have that context in your life to regularly open yourself up to others. This is why we talk so much about community groups and things, because when we're struggling, however we're struggling, what we want to do is stay home and be alone. And that's the thing that will destroy us. Uh, being with God's people, being prayed for, hearing, um, hearing about our lives amongst each other. Those are the things that are going to um, shake those fears loose uh, and, and by God's grace, make them less powerful. Yeah. It's, um, we don't have to know everybody really, really well in the church, but we should know a few people well enough to be ourselves with them. And if you can't think of anybody that you could just like completely unload to, um, ask God to bring that person into your life because they will be a lifesaver when you're in need.
we're going to take communion. Jesus, when he institutes the communion meal, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Jesus not only takes, he not only makes a unilateral covenant with us, right? He, he, he makes this covenant without binding us to any regulations, but he also takes the place of the sacrifice to seal it. He not only uh, creates the covenant, he walks through the bloody mess. And he invites us to participate in the covenant ceremony, not by swearing our own faithfulness, not by walking through the pieces ourselves, not by doing great feats of obedience, but simply by trusting in his faithfulness on our behalf. And that's the invitation at the communion table, to trust in Jesus' journey through death on your behalf and know that nothing can separate you from his love and his care for you. If you've, if you've trusted in Christ this morning, as, as the band comes up and we sing, I would just invite you to come and, and take the, the bread and the, the cup. We have juice and wine per the dictates of your conscience. Take it back to the seat and um, just ask the Lord to show you where you're afraid this morning and how he can meet you in that place of fear and remind you of his faithfulness. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.